You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, Randy Bolander here. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us today. First off, apologies for those who tried to find the podcast last week on Apple Podcasts. For some reason, when I hit the button to send the podcast to all the podcast places, it went to Spotify and it didn't go to Apple and I don't really know why. And so today, I'm going to do the most uh, middle-aged dad thing ever, which is to say I'm going to do the same thing and hope for different results, because I really don't know what went wrong. Sometimes you just have to take another whack at it. So uh, hopefully you will find us wherever you are looking for us. Today we have audio from Sunday morning at the bridge where I spoke on the idea of community and so many people saying they're looking for it, but what they're really looking for is something very different. Christian community is very unique. It's uh, very strong. It is uh, confrontational, it is encouraging, but it is way, way more than that. It just doesn't make you happier, it actually makes you better. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about community, what some of the misconceptions are, and what the facts are when it comes to being the people that God wants us to be together. Stay with us. Jimmy, lie in bed in complete panic, knowing what was coming, because it happened every Sunday morning. He saw the sun come through the the curtains, and he dreaded it. He heard his mom's slippers come padding down the hallway, and he knew what was coming next because her voice sounded like a handful of gravel thrown against a screen door. She yells, Jimmy! Jimmy! Everybody's mother sounds like that when she's waking you up. Jimmy, it's time to get up. It's time to go to Sunday school. Jimmy, in a rare moment of bravery, bravery yells back at her, I don't want to go to Sunday school. She says, you have to go to Sunday school. Why don't you want to go to Sunday school? He says, the kids don't like me. The snacks are bad. And the lesson doesn't make any sense. She says, you have to go. He said, why do I have to go? She said, you're 43 years old. And you're the pastor. You have to go to Sunday school. Jimmy is not the first or the last person who's sometimes hesitant to go to church. Everybody is Jimmy at some point. There are times when the church experience is less than is promised in the brochure. It's less than what you saw in the email. It's less than what you were told it was going to be on Instagram. And maybe you don't want to go because it feels like nobody likes you and the snacks are bad and the lessons don't make any sense. Maybe the kids don't make fun of you but you still don't feel like you're really a part or you're plugged in. And what you thought you would find at church, you're actually finding other places, and you are done with it. One of the greatest tragedies, I think, of the last 18 months is how many people have declared themselves just done with it, just done with church. And there would be people that would come alongside them and say, you know, don't feel that way or explain that they're thinking about it the wrong way, I would tell them that everybody feels done with it at some point. But that longing in their heart for belonging for more than just church as normal is actually a sign of life and might be the most healthy thing about you. We are alive and we want more than just coming to gather once in a while and listen to someone and leave as if it made a difference. 
The internal desire is not dysfunction. You are not broken. You are normal. That desire is reminiscent of how we came into life at creation. We all carry the stamp of the image of God on our heart, but we also carry a very faint memory of life in the garden and what it was like to be in community with God. The psalmists wrote about people like Jimmy. Psalm 107, verses 4 to 8, 4 to 9. He wrote, Some wandered in desert washes, finding no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. It is not a sin to want to know your place. It's not a sin to want to know where your city is or where your tribe is. It doesn't make you high maintenance to want to connect or to belong. It doesn't make us difficult. It just makes us human. Poet John Milton wrote Paradise Lost and then later Paradise Regained about the fall of man and the reconnection of man to God. I think it could easily have been retitled Community Lost and Community Regained because the loss was that drastic. In the beginning, men and women belonged in the garden with their family, with their God. One of the most painful parts of the Bible is in Genesis 3, the result of man's sin playing out in his life was that Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden and out from their community with one another and with God. The pain was not that they had to work the ground. There was work in the garden. It was different after the fall, but they were used to responsibility. The pain was they had to leave town to do it. They had to leave their community. And since that day, God has heard our cry for a place and a desire to get back there. God created us to be one with one another and with him. Sadly, many people who sincerely find their way to God never end up finding where they belong. God is more concerned with your belonging than your behavior. Some of you have worked on your behavior for years, and you've always felt like, I just don't belong. God's looking at you going, I'm actually more concerned about the fact that you don't fit. I'm more concerned about the fact that you're not connected than I am your behavior. He's more concerned with your belonging with him and with others than he is how you act. One of the most neglected books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. To be honest, some of you in your hard copy Bibles have some books that are completely worn out and others that are strangely like new, right? Ecclesiastes is one of those books. It's written in an unusual style, and it kind of trends towards melancholy, and it's easy to get distracted when reading Ecclesiastes because the writer says that so much in life is meaningless. Talks about this, it's meaningless. Talk about this, oh, it's meaningless. It's easy to miss where the writer puts the real meaning of life because he talks about so many things being meaningless. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. He says, two are better than one. Two what? Cups of coffee? Yes. Two almost everything. My neighbor has two black lab puppies. I would say no to that. But two of most things is better than one. But he's talking about people. Which people? Almost any people. 
says, because they have a great reward for their toil. If one fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how they can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Even thousands of years ago, the writer of Ecclesiastes was writing a book that starts with vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he looks around and he finds precious little in life that matters. And this somehow is inspired by the Holy Spirit and ends up in the Bible. Can you imagine him looking around now with the increase of our leisure time? And how would he regard our lives? I think he would say, oh, wow, I thought that was vanity. This is vanity. More leisure time than any of us have ever had in our lives, walking around with phones that cost more than our first car, taking pictures of ourselves. He would say, oh, that, that's vanity. I thought we were vain. This is worse than it was when I was writing Ecclesiastes. But even in his melancholy, he has nothing but glowing things to say about the value of being in relationship with one another and living out our convictions in community. He goes like, nothing else makes sense in life if you are not connected to one another and connected to the Lord. In a world where nothing makes sense to this writer, connecting to others has the ultimate value. Two is better than one, and it doesn't even dictate which two. Even in a world full of vanity and as broken and as troubled as our lives are, two is better than one, but it never happens on its own. I often talk to people that say, you know, I'm just, I'm yearning for community. Just, I'm just aching for community. And I always follow up with, well, what are you doing to make that happen? Oftentimes, it's, I'm just waiting for it. Just waiting for it to come. We don't find community. And it doesn't find us. That's not how community works. Last August, we bought a house in what is called a new community. Now, a generation before would have called it a suburb. And a generation before that would have said, we just bought a house out in the boonies because there's nothing else there. There's a sign. There's a couple of houses. There's a fountain. But most of our neighbors are coyotes and a raccoon, some turkeys and a possum. There's a few other people out there, but it's not really what it will be. And they were calling it a community long before they even had streets. How does it get from what it is to what it will be? Somebody builds it. It doesn't just spring up. Across the street, there's a sign that says, future home of Blue Valley Elementary School. Very promising. Well, that'll be a community. I asked the developer a few weeks ago, when are they building the school? He said, probably in four years. Like, four years? You mean, you can just put up a, it's like the Truman Show. Remember the Truman Show where everything was fake? Except he could actually see it. We don't even get to see things. We just have signs put up. I'm thinking about putting up a sign promising Disneyland. And, you know, it's coming eventually. Is it there yet? No, it's not there yet. They're going to have to build it. That's what community is. You have to build community. It doesn't just happen, and you can't just find it. At some level, we knew this going into it. You buy a plot of land, and then they lay out streets, and then they build all the other things. And eventually, you have what you went there for. But community is built. It's not found. It takes effort and concrete and subcontractors, and people working together without hard work, a new community is just a cornfield with a fancy address. Many who say that they want community are looking for something that isn't really there, or they're not willing to build. 
How many of you remember from junior high history, uh, El Dorado? Remember El Dorado? Some of you are you're already thinking of a, a song by the Eagles. No, that, that's not the one. Before the Eagles, there was this mythical city, El Dorado, that the Spanish conquistadors would look for because it was supposed to be full of gold. And if they found it, all of their needs would be met. They'd be able to take all of this gold back home. Some people say they're looking for community. They're really looking for El Dorado. They're really looking for a place that will give them everything that they need that they can scoop together and take home. It's not what they bring to it. It's what they can take from it. Those who wander looking for community that will meet all of their needs are almost always disappointed because the community isn't there yet. You don't discover it. It's got to be built. Nothing has thrilled people or disappointed them like Christian community. Because the need is real, but the expectations are different than reality. People are looking to plug in somewhere where it's pure joy, pure excitement, pure fun. Everybody lifts them up. But when they really enter into true Christian community with people, they're shocked to find the Christian community is populated almost entirely by people like them. By needy people who are limiting and distasteful and surprisingly reflective of who we are. We're thinking, this is not El Dorado. This is not what I thought. Christian community is full of people that are no better off than we are, and those people have the audacity to talk to us about our lives. Those people have the the boldness to challenge us about how we live life. The disconnect between expectation and reality actually sours people on the thing that they thought they wanted, and then they wander away and say, I don't think I really want that at all said earlier this week that authentic Christian community is like opening a pizza box and finding kale. Like, it's probably better for me, but it's really not what I was looking for. I probably should have that, but I was really looking for something else. In order to understand Christian community and what we want to build, we've got to separate the myths from the facts, the expectations from the reality. Let me give you two myths and two facts, and then talk a little bit about what it'll look like. Myth number one, there is a myth that says community is harder to achieve than ever. People say, well, we've been through such unusual times. If we hear the word unprecedented one more time, our head's going to explode, but it's true. It's been hard. We've had COVID. There've been financial pressure, other things, our jobs, and that's all true, but we are quick to remind one another that yeah, it's probably never been this hard ever to connect. And in saying that it's never been harder to connect with people, we write ourselves an excuse slip and we say, we're just too busy, our life is too difficult, we're never going to connect with anybody else. But if we were honest, we would admit that every time in history it has has been difficult to connect. There's never been an easier time to connect than there is right now. Most of us, if we go back fewer generations than we have fingers on our hand. There was, we had a family member somewhere in our past that was washing clothes on a rock. You want to go back to them three or four generations back and tell them, we're just too busy to connect with one another right now. It's hard to make friends. The myth is that it was never harder to connect. The fact is community itself has always been under attack. 
It's always faced challenges, and this is why. Because the original community had God as a member, and we're trying to find community without him. Community with God and with one another was man's natural state. The disunity and the chaos and the disconnectedness that we all feel is a contortion of what is meant to be and what was in the garden. God created man and woman, placed them in the garden in a setting with the expectation of being in community with them. And it wasn't a community of exclusivity. It was intended to grow and it was poised for growth. And in that setting, man and woman found identity and roll. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man and women in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. As parents, if you don't have children, this is, we're gonna just, this is kind of behind the scenes talk. There are times when you have to set your kids up for success. Like you do everything you can so that they actually succeed at what you're asking them to do, right? You just can't bear the thought of them failing. And it's just like, I'll do whatever I can and I'll, I'll make it easy for them. Scout right now is trying to raise money. Heaven knows what for. I don't know. I'm a little afraid to ask. But he, he's always looking for jobs. So we find little jobs. He's six. His skill set is not real good. Okay. Can't drive. It's not great at computers. It's like, it's not, a, but he can fold socks if you're not particular about the socks matching. Actually, he's pretty good at it. So we find little jobs for him and we give him a dollar. So, like when you set, as a parent, you set your kids up for success. You just do. From the beginning, God set man up for community. That's like he like greased the skids and made it easy. He gave us every advantage that we could imagine for us to commune together with him and with one another. He gave us relationships, likeness in his image. We could relate to him. Oh, God, like us, not like us, but we, there's an element of us like him. He gave us work or dominion over nature. So he gave us a role to play and he gave us identity and distinction in gender. Slight side issue, but important. You can't get past the emphasis of gender in Scripture. You just can't. It's there. To blur the idea of gender is to blur identity. And I'm not talking about roles and who takes out the trash and who changes oil in the car. That, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about being or essence. Any discussion of the gender issue right now in the public forum is getting dragged into the auspices of a culture war. And when it's dragged into that, you're set up as a group of people who don't understand another group of people and are trying to change them. And that debate over the blurring of gender is not a culture war, it's an identity war. Because the enemy says, you are not what God made you, and the church in response says, no, actually you are. And even if you don't feel or believe it, we are going to believe the greater truth for you, which is what God made you to be. That doesn't mean it's not going to be messy. That doesn't mean there aren't people that are confused. That doesn't mean there aren't people that are struggling with deep things. But God set people in gender to relate to one another and to relate to him. And that was a blessing. It wasn't a part of the curse. 
When we hold the line on those things, it's not because we want to stuff people or make them less than they are. It's because we want to call them according to how God called them. And that's a blessing. When somebody calls you what God calls you instead of what you believe about yourself, they're actually blessing you. They're actually calling you up. And that's true Christian community. Deep down, people are dying to hear what God says about them, even if they don't believe it. You've heard the phrase, original sin. The idea that we are born under this blanket of sin that we just kind of inherit from our forefathers, and everyone has it, and it's true. There are people who will argue with that, nobody with children. If you have children, you know that original sin is a real thing, okay? Because that beautiful little child that has never seen violence and never been exposed to anything other than light jazz and muted colors, when they get to be three, bonk their brother on the head with a toy. It's like, it's just innate, okay? Original sin is not a hard sell, especially to parents. They get it. But before original sin, there was original community. And the path of forgiveness and redemption that we are on leads us back to that sort of community. The narrative that all God is concerned about is your sin and forgiving you is too small. It's true. It's totally true. And it is crucial. But he is about more than you stopping your sin. He is about placing you in fellowship with him and with others so that you can live to your full potential. The original community is what Satan attacked. And he put doubt in Eve's mind when he questioned her about what God said. He starts by saying, did God actually say that you're not going to eat any tree of the garden? And with that lie, the myth began that God was against us rather than for us. And when we fell for that lie, we lost communion with him and really communion with anybody. We are not wrestling to get to something that has never been obtained before. We are wrestling to get back to the state that we were created to be in, which is in fellowship with him and with fellowship with one another. True Christian community is not an unobtainable goal. It's how humanity started, and by God's grace, it is what we are fighting our way back to. One of the blessings of parenthood is you can see a little bit further down the road than your kids. Right? And you, you go, eh, it's not going to turn out the way you think it's going to turn out. You can just see it down the road a little bit. Now, you're not always right. Sometimes you're wrong. Last couple of weeks, I gave my, my second oldest son some very straight fatherly advice. And he said, yeah, I don't think so. Turns out he was right. I doofed it. Jesus sees further down the road than we do. But he never doofs it. He's right every time. Even as a parent, you've been there. Oh, I gave the wrong advice. He never gives the wrong advice. And he said in Matthew 18, 20, he's talking about broken relationships here, how to restore them, the idea of coming together in community. And he gives us a promise that we have taken out of context and, and used to uh, mean less than it really means. Matthew 18, 20, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We have made that about a prayer meeting. You know, if two or three people gather and pray, then the, the Lord's there. We just, you know, the Lord, anytime, he's not talking about prayer. It's, yes, it is in prayer, but he's actually talking about community. The verses before that talk about reconciling and being connected to one another. I think there are times when people fight like cats and dogs behind the scenes, then they get together in church and gather hands and say, hey, let's pray. When two or three are gathered, He's with him, and Jesus is going, I'm just going to stand over here by the donuts, thanks. I'm not going to join that mess. 
You guys have been arguing all week on Facebook, and now we're two or three are gathered. You want me to jump in on that? That's not what that scripture is about. It's about unity. God is promising when we come together in unity that his presence is there, but he doesn't meet us in the same way if we come together in disunity. It's different. The myth is the community is harder to achieve than ever. The fact is it's always been hard to achieve, but when we move towards one another, the Lord moves towards us. Myth number two, the purpose of Christian community is your encouragement. Poof, that's a myth, okay? There are churches built and fellowships built on this entire idea about encouragement. No matter what happened this week, if you can drag your sorry self into the service, you're going to leave encouraged or at least excited. When we graduated from Bible college, a friend took a little church in East Tennessee and um, when you're in ministry, when you get to be about 30, you want to go back to all the people that you ministered to before you were 30 and just issue a blanket apology. You know, just like, sorry, I didn't know what I was doing. I went to Bible college, but they don't teach anything. I'm sorry. Well, one of the, this is what my friend did. He took this little church and on the side of the van in the biggest letters he could paint, he painted the most exciting church in town. And he told me that and I thought, man, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Like, I don't know that I can deliver the most exciting church on town. Now you have to do it every week. Because people expect it should be exciting and it should be encouraged. And we should be, and, and church can be those things. It can be exciting, it can be encouraging. But there are people that think that if we just get together and encourage one another and feel better, then we will do better. In their mind, being together makes us comfortable and we're comfortable, we're happy. And when we're happy, we go out and we do better. And that is a myth. I've been happy doing a lot of things I shouldn't have done. I've been encouraged about things that really shouldn't have been that encouraging. And it is a myth propagated by people who find themselves discouraged and say that the reason they're discouraged is the church is not encouraging enough for them. They're settling for the idea of encouragement being the highest calling of Christian community. Now, the church should be encouraging. It shouldn't be discouraging, but it's not the highest calling of the church. And here's a big problem. Encouraging one another is beautiful, but it's not even uniquely Christian. People find encouragement everywhere. And if you think the highest purpose of Christian fellowship is encouragement, then you'll begin to think of wherever you find encouragement is your church. I know people that say, you know what? I find everything that I'd be looking for at a church in the bar. I go to the bar. They know my name. My drink is ready. They're friendly to me and they care about me. And you know what? That can be true. You can get encouraged in that. The idea of being kind and encouraging to one another exists inside the church and outside the church. It's not a uniquely Christian situation. In fact, it's Shakespearean. Macbeth, Lady Macbeth says, uses the phrase, the milk of human kindness. It's not related to Christianity. It's just related to people being good to one another. And that compassion can be found outside the church. When I was 28, my dad passed away. He was a farmer. And at my dad's funeral, a group of other farmers came to my mom and said, we'll farm the land one more year on your behalf. We'll, we'll run the operation. You don't have to do anything. So you get another year's income. It was incredibly kind. It was incredibly encouraging. Were all of those people believers? No. Some of them were, had nothing to do with the Lord. They were just kind. 
Because kindness is found outside the bounds of the Christian community, being nice or even kind is not the end all of being a Christian community. There's got to be more to that, or you could find it elsewhere. The fact is that we are not called to make nice. We are called to make disciples. Now, does that mean we shouldn't be nice? No, no. We should be nice. We should be encouraging. That should be a part of who we are. And I'm grateful for the people who've been kind to me over the years, but I am far more grateful for the people who've discipled me. I'm grateful for the people who've said nice things to me, but I'm far more grateful for the people who have challenged me. The highest function of the Christian community is discipleship. The ultimate reason the Lord puts us together in one another's lives, which will include encouragement and will include fun and will include all of the things that people think they go to church for, the ultimate reason is that we would produce in one another a Christ-like character that can be explained no other way other than the gospel has worked in our lives. Lots of things can be encouraging to you, but community with other believers actually engages your heart and moves you to be more like Jesus. In many ways, this is a continuation of the message two weeks ago where we talked about people who had followed Jesus for 20 years, but for some reason just never seemed to get any better. And they had no control of their thought life. It's because also those people had never been discipled. They'd never been in the kind of close relationships where people were allowed to say hard things to them and challenge them and make them to be more like Jesus. Encouragement can be found everywhere. Remember the milk of human kindness. In fact, encouragement can be rented. I ride a bike several nights a week in my closet. It's a spin bike. It goes nowhere, but I get on it. And I ride this thing, and it's got a screen in front of me. And on the screen is an individual who I give money to yell at me. And he yells at me things like, you can do it. Don't give up now. Breathe in confidence. Breathe out doubt. I was like, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. But I do it. I'm doing it. He yells, you were blessed. You woke up this morning. Here's the truth. This guy doesn't know I'm alive. He really doesn't. Has no idea I'm alive. In fact, he said all these things a week ago to another group of people in New York, and they filmed it, and I'm watching it, and I get off the bike exhausted, but I'm encouraged with that nonsense. What's super crazy, again, he has no relationship to me. And I can, I can, you can rent encouragement if that's what you're looking for. Paul was not a fitness coach who made people feel better. He was an apostle. And because he was an apostle, he encouraged people to be more and to do more. 1 Corinthians 11 starts with this nine-word bombshell that you may never want to say. But if you do say it and you mean it, you become a force for community stronger than anybody who ever encourages you. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 11, he starts out, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The nerve. Can you imagine? Here, guys, follow me. I'm going to follow Christ. And you follow. It's like, I don't know if I want to say that. That takes some nerve and it takes some commitment. But you know what? If we had a few people who said that and we could follow them, the community that would spring up around that idea of making one another better and making one another more Christ-like instead of just encouraged. Christian community is about more than encouraging you. It's about making you like Jesus. 
And sometimes that's a hand on your back. Sometimes that's a hand on your backside. And that's what it takes for us to change. You may be sitting going, you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody's really discipling me. When I think about who is discipling me, who is it? I don't think anybody's discipling me. Someone is. This is who is discipling you. This is how to tell who is discipling you. Who do you choose to listen to when you messed up? When you goofed up, when you did something wrong, when everybody knows it, what voice do you listen to? Whatever voice you listen to is the one that is discipling you through that. That's who is discipling you. They don't even have to be extra close to you. They just need to love you well enough to speak the truth to you, and you want to hear it. When I think back to the people who have influenced me to be like Jesus, they were always people who challenged me. Yeah, I mean, they encouraged me, but they also countered me. They said, good job, and they said, eh, not good job. They challenged me along the way. A while back, I was relaying a difficult story to a friend. And it was something that I was really, really irked about. You ever just want to tell somebody, sit down, this is going to take a while. And I'm telling them the story, and it was complex, okay? It was, what I was irked about was so complex that they got lost in the story. They said, can you stop, stop. Can you tell me the three or four main things that you're irked about? Well, I had to think about it. There were so many. So I started telling them specifically what were the things. And as I started laying the specifics out about what I was irked about, I said one of them, and I said, you know, now that I say that out loud, that sounds kind of petty. Now, a kind person would have said, oh, no, 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 you just need to get it out. It's understandable that you feel that way. But this brother, who I've invited to speak into my life, said, you know, I'm sure it hurt, but you know what? That did sound petty. He said, I think next time you tell this story, don't tell that part of the story. Because it's petty. You know what? I felt honored by that. I felt that this guy would care about me enough that he would go, don't do that. Okay, you look goofy when you do that. He was discipling me. Who are the people that you listen to when you've goofed up? Those are the ones that are discipling you. If you want to know Christian community at its fullest, you've got to be around people who challenge you and say those hard things to you. And if you don't find yourself with those people, you will not grow. It just won't happen. Let's take a look real quickly at the early Christian community here and just pull out a couple of things as we close. Go to Acts chapter 2, verses 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. What were the hallmarks of this early Christian community? What drew them together? Now what draws people into a church could be a lot of things. They like the location, like the worship leader, they like the, you know, what? but there was none of this at this point. It wasn't like if they didn't like this church, they'd go to another. Why were they together? The primary connection for community in the New Testament was the common faith that they had in Jesus. They were there at the invitation of and in pursuit of a man, Jesus. They had either seen them with their own eyes or they met someone who knew him and they were deeply impacted by them and they knew if I get close to this man in this life or the next, boy, I'd give everything to see his face. And to get close to him, I've got to get close to other people that are going the same direction. 
You can't have, find Christian community without sharing the goal of that common faith or of Jesus. It's not around worship styles. It's not about geography. It's not about any of those things that we seem to congregate around now. It's about a hunger to know him. 1 Peter 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And knowing that is why believers from Olathe, Kansas, and believers from Oslo, Norway, can gather together and have like fellowship. Because they're going after that same man. There's a supernatural act of bonding that goes on in the body of Christ when people come together gathered around that one man. It's like this thread woven through our lives. I've talked to people who leave churches and say, yeah, there was just nobody like me there. Really? What would you say is the most important thing about you? Oh, I love Jesus. There's nobody there that loved Jesus? Like, that was, that's the reason you should have come together. That's the, that's the common thread. Do relationships happen more easily in context of people of a similar life station? Oh, absolutely. But relationships happen most deeply at the intersection of our faith. That is why some of you with young kids would glean immensely from coming alongside an older couple that are empty nesters and say, I just want to get to know you. It's why some of you who are in retirement mode would benefit immensely and build the kingdom by coming along outside a young single or someone and say, hey, I want to get to know you. Because it may seem like you have nothing in common, but the most important thing about you, you have in common. Communities built around Jesus. You're not defined by your children or your lack of children or your retirement or your, your job. We're defined as a people of faith in Jesus. And any community that is based on anything other than that might be sweet, but it's less than it could be. Short of agreement on who he is and what we want to know in him, we don't develop community. First part of Christian community is that common faith. The second part is what we call common experience. Acts 2, 42 and 43, a deep sense of awe came over them and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. They had a common event going on and they were there for it and they encountered Jesus together. Why do we sing together during church? Why do we come together and sing? Because together we encounter the Lord in a way that we would not another way. It's not just get to get songs out, you know. It's not just because Rachel's going, you know, here's a sweet song I just wrote. I want you to hear it. No, no it's because singing together, we have a common, common occurrence. This weekend of this women's conference, I promise you, women will come out of that closer than they did going... What, what, what is it about it? It's about common experience, about encountering the Lord together. 20 years ago, I heard a speaker named uh, um, uh, Leonard Sweet. He was a, a believer and a futurist, and I thought everything he said was completely crazy. Like, he was looking so far out in the future, I just thought he was a nut. Turns out everything he told us 20 years ago has come to pass. Now, I was fascinated by him. He, he's uh, got this incredibly resonant voice. He had long gray hair. He looked like Gandalf. And uh, I remember him saying, the greatest threat to the Western church is mass customization. And I remember thinking, that's profound. I don't know what he's talking about. But it's pro I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? Mass customization. Then he went on to explain, there used to be mass production. Why did Henry Ford sell so many cars? Because you could have a car any color you wanted if it was black. And it was easy to, to mass, custom, uh, mass uh, production because everything was the same. But he said the future of the church will involve mass customization and it will be the Burger King church where everybody thinks they get it their own way. 
and they'll search everywhere. And the truth is you don't find community that way. You find it in common experience. You find it in coming together and saying, there are some things here I don't like, but you know what? They love Jesus. And because they love Jesus, I'm going to encounter Jesus with them. Part of the reason community is hard in our context is we think it should always be our own way. So there's common faith, common experience. And the third and probably most infringing on our lives is the idea of common interest. And I'm not talking about hobbies here. I mean our common interest in caring for one another. Acts 2, 45, 47. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship who were being saved. The easiest thing to talk about in this idea of common interest would be finances, okay? But that's a vast oversimplification about what they're talking about here. They're not just talking about finances. This is not New Testament communism where everybody puts everything into a pot. That's not the way it worked. There were people in the New Testament church that owned their own businesses. There were people in the New Testament church that owned their own homes. Simon the Tanner had a home. Not everybody put everything they had into the pot and divide. It's not communism. It is actually looking at community a different way of saying, not El Dorado, what can I get out of it? But what do people need that I can help with? How can I contribute? The point where Christian community goes beyond just a hard attitude and of saying, what can I find here? But what can I bring? When you bring your heart and you move from being a consumer, and we all start as consumers, to a contributor, suddenly you find your place. And I'm not talking just about tithing, although I believe that's biblical and I think that's a part of it. I'm talking about diving in with a local church, whether it's the bridge, you're from somewhere else, your local church, and asking, what do they need that I can contribute in time or in effort or talent? I had the most encouraging Zoom with a family this week. They said, we've been there a couple of weeks. How can we help? They just offered to help like psychopaths or something, you know? I'm just kidding. But, you know, they're like, it was the most unusual thing. Hey, can we help you? Those are people who will find community. Those are people who will find themselves knit to one another and growing closer to the Lord. Because community is what you get when you don't live for yourself anymore. And you dive in and you help others. It's a serious need but the church can meet it. I want to ask if our musicians would come back. The Lord wants to satisfy our soul with belonging. And it's hard to find. And it's hard to do in this context. You know, you can come and you can hear me speak and maybe you feel like you know me and maybe you do. And maybe I feel like I know you, although apparently from earlier this morning, I don't even know the name of the church. But this is not how, we can grow, we can have common experience, but this is not real community. Community happens around the table. It happens in close proximity where you have those conversations about, hey, why'd you do it that way? What were you thinking? I know you're hurting, but can we encourage you to think about it a different way? We are leaning into the formation of, of small groups. A number of you have asked already, hey, are you have small groups? We're just getting there. And what we're looking for is for five, six singles or couples that would say, hey, I think I could host one of these. We're going to make it as easy as possible for you. There'll be content. We're actually just going to take the message 
Meet that week, talk about it. You'll have a couple of leading questions to, that will inspire conversation. And in that, you will grow together. You get to determine how big that group is. You get to determine how it meets, when it meets. But if you're interested in hosting a small group, whether it's on a weekly basis or every other week, Daniel Grins is going to be out in the foyer. Stop, talk to him a little bit. We will give you a little training. You're not going to throw you to the wind. We want to be able to say we have opportunities where real community can, can form beyond just this. You were meant to plug in and to know others and to be known and in that context to grow closer to Jesus and reflect him better. It's what you're made for. It's what your heart is longing for. Stand with me. I want to ask Rachel to just lead one more song as we prepare to this.